Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Sherry Jones, uh, straight to Barbados for this one. Sherry is busy, by the way. She juggles a lot of stuff. Uh, We'll talk about what that is in just a sec. And you can hear how she wakes up incredibly early to get her passion and her work and her life and her studies and all of that, how she fits it in. Also, we talk about setting the scene, creating the atmosphere of the Caribbean with words Uh, And you can hear how she has to tune in to listen to what her story is telling her. I'll hear a character in my head or something will come to me. um, And I might feel as if I'm getting something from that character's perspective. But in my, in my, when I sort of put on that editing hat and that crafting hat it's more about getting to the real story what what's behind that initial impulse here's what I've got done but what is the real story so then the writing is about it's a process of discovery and it's about filling in the picture and that's one of the things that I find most exciting about it stick around there is more on the way uh, with debut novelist Sherry Jones in this week's writer's routine Hello, welcome along. It's Writer's Routine. Uh, my name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for searching us out. Thank you for downloading, listening, subscribing. This is the show where we look inside an author's day to see how they get ideas from their head onto the paper. How do they sort out their time and their space to help get that done? Uh, now, it's been kind of a big week, I guess, since we last spoke. Uh, here in the UK, anyway, we've just had the plans to get out of lockdown. The current plans to get out of lockdown. What were the plans when they were spoke? Just delete as appropriate, really. I mean, it's strange. You know, if we do get out on the 21st of June, I think is when it is, when it should all be done. It's just weird after being holed up indoors for so long. Like, are you the same? One of the first things I'm looking forward to doing is heading into a massive bookshop and just hunkering down in a fat off chair and reading. (laughs) Or taking my book to the pub and still staying indoors. Uh, I reckon you're probably the same if you're listening to this show. Now, this week, we're chatting to Sherry Jones. Her debut novel is called How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House. It's in the traditions and styles of Zadie Smith and Marlon James. It's about four people desperately trying to escape the legacy of violence in what everyone thinks is a Caribbean paradise. And Sherry is busy. 
listen to this. She's a full-time lawyer, a single mother of four, currently finishing a PhD, and she's found time in all of that to write her debut novel as well. You can find how she carved out the space in her day to get that done. Uh, Also, we talk about how she got the idea commuting, not in the sunny Caribbean, but in drizzly London town. Uh, And we look at how she wanted to paint Barbados accurately. I mean, yes, it is an exotic tourist hotspot that people here, I dream of going to, but there's also a lot going on there. How did she reflect that in her story? Uh, It's a really interesting answer to that one. Uh, So that's on the way. First, let's get into it, as we always do, with what Sherry Jones sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. What I see really is my bed, um, my bedside table, right outside. There are two windows in my bedroom, and outside one, there's just a, a really large expanse of pasture. And outside the other one, there's a corner of my garden. It's it's a really wild um, corner, very much untended and free um, with a little shed. So there's a a mango tree, a bay leaf tree and a moringa tree and lots of wild grass. So that's what I see if I look outside. Um, And inside, yeah, it's just my bed, my bedside table and so on. How has the last year affected life in the Caribbean? I mean, it's been a challenge for everyone, you know, globally. But I think for us in the Caribbean, we have some specific concerns, including the impact that it's had on tourism. Now, tourism is one of our major, um, actually, it's probably the major foreign exchange earner for us. So that's one of the the real big um, impacts that we've had. And we did have a period of lockdown in Barbados um, last year from about the end of March until sometime in June. And there was a curfew in place and, you know, police were patrolling and so on. For us in Barbados, that's unprecedented, certainly in my lifetime. So it was quite, it was quite traumatic, I think, um, for most of us. So I think the two biggest um, things for me, the two biggest impacts I'd have to say are the impact on our ability to earn foreign exchange. And then two, I think the psychological trauma of everything that's happened. So yes. I was very interested in that because, you know, where we are in the UK, it's, you know, we, we only really, I guess, we only really hear about how things are here in this kind of strange mentality that we're the most important people of the world. So I'm just always curious to, that is, it's wrong, but I'm always curious to check in with how everyone else has been affected. That's a little digression. Let me take you back to your room. So you've got your mango trees outside. You've got the pastures around in your room. What have you got maybe on the walls that's there to inspire you to storytell? I have a lot of um, little things for my kids. So, you know, right now I'm looking at, Um, a hastily torn out page from a scrapbook that says, you know, I love you, mommy, with all sorts of flowers on it. I've got a calendar. I don't actually have any inspirational things to do with my writing. I think writing for me is such a compulsion that, you know, I do it anyway. I'd probably be nuts um, if I didn't. So, you know, it really, it really is something that I do. So I actually don't have any inspirational sayings on my wall in the room. 
do you have anything that helps you keep track of what you're writing? Maybe post-it notes, maybe a pin board where you can jot things down? Well, what I've, what I've done is I do have, um, actually on the computer, I do have sort of things in progress. And for my last novel, for example, um, I would have worked on a timeline. So there was a point... Um, when I think the the time within the novel was perhaps a little bit, it wasn't working out the way I expected it to. So I actually went online and did um, a timeline for that. Um, so I do have that online. There've been, you know, it, it could be different things at different times. So I tend to be fairly episodic in my in my writing, and there was a one point in time where I just had several sheets. Um, of different different scenes as they came to me. And it was literally a matter of spreading them out on a table and just swapping them around. I'd read somewhere that that was a good idea. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what I actually did. So in the middle of a project, that's something that I would do. But in terms of generally, no. I just write um, what comes to me at the time, what I feel like working on at that particular point in time. What's the practicality of that, Sherry? What are you writing on? Is it a, a computer, a laptop? Um, talk me through the software. I know this sounds tedious, but are you using Word or something like that? <laughs> yes, I do use Word. I have to say, though, that my first draft, when I get my initial inspiration, um, that, that first impulse to write something, it tends to be by hand from the back of one of my writer's notebooks. Um, I don't know why that is. That's just something that I've always done. So um, whatever notebook it is, I'll start from the last page and come towards the front. And I tend to do those first drafts in hand. After that, in longhand, after that, it's really on the computer. So it's typing it up in Word and then doing my editing. Um, Sometimes I do have a file that has, you know, things I've thrown away in the editing process, but want to keep um, maybe for future reference, for future use. But um, yes, it really is a matter of using Word. Um, I tend also to use Outlook. Um, I use my calendar in, if, I, if I need to schedule something. And I use notes on my iPhone a lot. So, you know, inspiration doesn't always strike when I am in a position to sit down and write in the notebook. So I've started writing things in the notes feature on my iPhone, on the bus. Um, I've been in the car and something comes to me and I'll just record a voice note. So there are lots of um, lots of different, you know, methods, electronic methods that I use to help me. But I would have to say that my preference and the thing I do more than anything else is just to write in longhand, certainly for first drafts. Why is that, Sherry? What's the longhand keeping you connected to, do you think? You know, that's, a, that's an excellent question that I wish I knew the answer to. I don't know. It's just like um, there's something just, um, I don't know. I don't know how I how I how I'd express that. I want to say mystical, but 
that's not quite it. Um, it's not superstition. It's just something that I find um, makes it a lot easier for me. And it, I've just, I've just done it, you know, for the better part of my adult life in terms of my writing. That's, that's, that's generally how I do it. But I have no idea why that is. Now, without blowing smoke places, I just want to read a, a list. So you're, you're a full-time lawyer, um, currently finishing a PhD, single mother of four kids, and you've brought out your debut novel. I'm excited to figure out how you, um, how you fit that all in, because like, the, the, the point of practicality is why we're here. So the show is writer's routine, Sherry. Uh, will you, talk, me, will you talk, talk us through yours? So the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, Talk me through how, how a day works and how you're trying to squeeze in some writing amongst everything else. Okay. So the, the first thing that I would say about that and, and trying to pursue all those things is I'm never doing all of them well at the same time. There's always something is always being done a little less diligently than others in order for me to get things done. So it tends to take a little bit longer for me in in some respects to to see the fruit of whatever it is that I'm trying to achieve. Um, but that said, generally speaking, I will get up about 3 a.m., especially if, yes, and I've had some, some situations where if I'm really working on something great, you know, I'll take a nap like maybe 10 o'clock till 12 and I just don't go back to sleep. Um, so yes, but, um, I'll get up at three and write probably until around six. Then it's downstairs, it's breakfast, it's getting people, kids ready for school and making sure everybody has lunch and lunch money. We're out the door, um, drop everybody off to school. Then I, am into work. I have a really, um, I think understanding employer and they're quite flexible in terms of the, the time that I start. So I don't have an 8 a.m. start. Generally, I get to work about 9 or 9.30. Um, and then I'm just immersed in whatever I'm doing at work. So that could be working on a legal opinion. That could be, um, you know, doing corporate secretarial services for a meeting um, just generally answering queries and advice, talking to the team that I work with. Um, and I'll go through that. I am famous for skipping lunch, which is not the best thing. Um, but when I do take lunch, I like to just escape from work altogether and go and park somewhere very quiet, um, sit down and listen to the radio or just, just think, um, then I'd go back to work. I tend to work until about, I'd say 6, 6.30. If it's something, if there's a big project, then it would be a little bit later. Luckily, I don't have the pickup to do with the kids um, on the evenings, in the evening time. And yeah, then it's home, dinner, bath, and bed, and then get up the next day and do it all again. So, yes, <laughs> I actually find writing to be very energizing. It's difficult to explain. When I'm up at three in the morning, 
you know, sometimes I'm really sad when when it's 6 a.m. If it's going well, I mean, I have those days that I can't get. Nothing seems to be going right in terms of whatever it is that I'm writing. But there are some days that, you know, six o'clock comes and the sun is up and I'm, you know, I'm surprised at how the time has flown. Um, so it actually, I find it very energizing for me to get into my writing. And it's almost like a relief because a lot of the rest of the time I'm carrying around characters in my head or or storylines or something just comes to me and I really, really want to write it down. So it actually feels like a privilege to be able to have that time in the morning when everybody is, is asleep and things are quiet to just be able to focus on my writing. So having said that, that is the, that is sort of the, the everyday um, or the most days, but I have from time to time just, you know, given everything up and just dedicated a block of time to my writing. So I've done, you know, I've, I've said to my employers, in more than one instance, one that I can think of really well now. Um, and I've on, in, on that occasion, I just said, okay, well, I have a month of holiday due to me and I'm going to a writer's colony. So, you know, I'm just going to take the entire month and do that. And I did. Um, there have been periods where I've quit um, and either pursued further studies in writing or just sought to put myself in a position so I can just devote myself to my writing. So I think it's a mix because over the, over any given period of a number of years, I've had some of those instances of just intense work on my writing. Um, and then I've had those periods of just being able to do a little bit each day. So I think it's just really important for any writer to do what works for you. I think the important thing is to just, you know, just get it done. Just, just, just be present. Just give your writing that block of time, whether it's going to be an hour, half an hour, um, whatever it is, just do it consistently and, you know, just turn up. Now, the thing with creativity that I've kind of learned through the way is that it, it is trainable. When it knows that you need to get the, work, the words down over three hours in a morning, but then maybe you take a little bit of time off and you've got the leisure of a whole day. Um, how do you find the ideas coming when you do have a whole day at your liberty to just write whatever you want? Is, do you find it easier? Is it a little bit harder in places? You know, it's been different things at different times. I remember once taking, um, taking a month off um, to pursue a fellowship at a writer's colony and the first few days were really productive. There's always that um, that first day of just unwinding and getting accustomed to the quiet, getting quiet, I think, internally. Um, and then the few days after that, you know, were quite productive. But it was cold and I was far away from home and I missed the kids. And all of a sudden, it was just I just couldn't get anything done. And I had all these great plans for this time. Um, so I had to do some other things uh, to try to help um, that creative impulse to come back. So yes, it is trainable, but for me, 
a lot depends on the circumstances of that time. So early in the morning, three o'clock, I know I want to get something done and I'm excited about the storyline. Great, no problem. There are other mornings when, you know, if the deadline is that same day and nothing seems to be going right, then <laughs> I'll probably just end up emailing, you know, my editor to just say, I just need a, a few more days. So it's different things at different times. Um, I can't say that it's consistently better when I have long periods of time, um, dedicated blocks of time to work. And at 3 a.m., uh, how do you know what you want to get done that morning? Is there a goal in mind? How much of an idea do you have of what part of your story you are writing? Okay, so I don't have a goal like uh, a thousand words every day. That's definitely not one of my goals. What tends to happen with me is that I would have something in my head that I've been chewing on um, through the rest of the time when I'm thinking if I, you know, if I have any sort of time to just think if I'm not focused on something else, I'm probably there's something in my head that I want to get down. So my objectives at 3am are more like that to give, give this particular piece of writing space, like room to develop. It's almost as if I am, it's almost as if I'm just allowing something to, to just flow through me. So it's, it's just about dedicating that time and that space. Um, so I don't go with a goal, you know, I don't have sort of a, a plot plan and I don't, you know, do an outline and say, okay, this morning I'm going to try to do 500 words or if I do 500 words every day. It's not like that for me. Um, that can be difficult sometimes because, what it does mean is that some projects take longer than others. And, you know, if there is a really pressing flash fiction story in my head, then that's what I want to work on. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not, I don't generally, I don't generally have an objective in terms of word count, but usually there's something that I know I want to get down and it's about dedicating that time and space to doing it. When you're working with a novel, though, and you're and you don't have a plan or or a, or a really thorough sense of the plot, how much do you like to know about a story before you do sit down and start writing? How much of the general picture do you like to know? Um, actually, not a lot. For me, writing the novel is almost like a, the process of discovery. So. I'll hear a character in my head or something will come to me um, and I might feel as if I'm getting something from that character's perspective. But in my, in my, when I sort of put on that editing hat and that crafting hat, it's more about getting to the real story. What, what's behind that initial impulse. Here's what I've got done, but what is the real story? So then the writing is about, it's a process of discovery and it's about filling in the picture. And that's one of the things that I find most exciting about it. So I actually don't start off with an outline and, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in every chapter. And sometimes characters lead me down all kinds of 
you know, paths and to all kinds of places. And some of them are dead ends and some of them aren't. Um, but, you know, that's part of it. And I, I really, really enjoy that. When you're doing so many different things throughout a day, you need to kind of put on the hat, you know, of, of who you are now. Now I'm, I've got the mum hat on, I've got the lawyer hat on. Is there anything that lets you tap into the mood you need to be in while you're writing? Anything that kind of gets the creative juices going, whether it's like a cup of coffee at a certain time, a piece of music that you play. Is there anything like that, Sherry? Yeah, I'm very, very, very much into um, music. So for lots of um, my projects, there, there'd be a particular soundtrack to it. There's, you know, there's a playlist. There's something that I tended, I would have been listening to um, a lot while working on it. So I like to listen to music. Um, but other than that, no, just I think music is, is the real thing. There's no, you know, a cup of coffee or there's there's nothing else really other than being comfortable, perhaps having some music going in the background and, you know, in my earphones. And other than that, just the quiet of the morning and I can go from there. Now, the way you write seems to me, it's quite a romantic uh, type of storytelling where you're sitting there and you're you're letting the words come out as they want to. When you've got them all, how does the, the, the maybe the rougher end of editing work where you've got to kind of collate these words that you've got down in, into a story? How are you with sitting there and, and killing your darlings and making it form a structure yes at that point there is a point when the love affair you know with the characters and and what they're telling me kind of stops and then it's a little more ruthless in terms of my loyalty then is to the story um so it's almost as if I listen to what everybody has to say and then I piece together what actually happened and that's the that's it so yeah I probably have to say it's three stages there's the initial inspiration and then there's the crafting of the full story and then there's the editing and the editing part is when I get um really ruthless I I tend to like stories um that say quite a lot by what they don't actually say um so a lot of my editing is about taking things out that aren't necessary, that don't add to what I'm trying to say. Um, I'm not a particularly descriptive writer. I mean, I do, I do do it, but I'm I'm more into emotional landscapes and and so on. But I'd say um, yes, the editing point is is the point at which I get particularly ruthless, and that's just because you know it's. It's less about that romance now, and it's more about just being true to the story. That's all I'm interested in, how, how to polish it, how to make it the best of what it actually is. And, and that's just how I approach it. There are one or two characters that or bits of writing that don't make the cut um, in editing, but I can't let go of. So they're still on the computer somewhere, just waiting. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll get back to it with Sherry in just a sec. Uh, Very quickly, a little reminder that if you enjoy the show, if you're getting loads of tips and advice from some of the best storytellers around, uh, you can help us out. Um, there are many ways that you can support and get in touch with the show. You can give us a follow on Twitter. We are at WritersPod there. You can subscribe as well. That really helps with all, all the chart faff, all of that chart craziness. Apparently, it's done by subscriptions. So if you've not subscribed, it's win-win because it helps us with the chart and you get the uh, the episode automatically downloaded uh, to however you listen. Uh, you can also contact the show at writersroutine.com. And you can help us out on the Patreon as well. Uh, pledge over there, just a couple of dollars a month, really helps us carry on bringing you interviews with the best writers around. For that, uh, you get merch, uh, you get our thanks, and there is also a way for you to support, the, uh, for you to sponsor the show, for you to get your book, your book that's released, maybe got lost in the commotion uh, and of the last year and the lockdown with all of that. If you would like your book to get the shout out that you think your work deserves, uh, we can help you out with that. Just pledge to support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with this week's guest, Sherry Jones, talking about her brand new book, her debut, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House, uh, which is a proper bookie book title, isn't it? You know what I mean? So it's a bookie book title. Uh, in this half, we chat about her characters, how she gets to know them, how she keeps them engaged through the crafting stage. Also, we, we move to the editing and what happens when she feels she's overtold the story. Uh, and we pick things up talking about the very first draft, why she has her ears open and is always ready to listen. I don't know if that is my, if that's just my process, but what I'd say is that for me, the initial effort is just to get the story down. As it comes, no judgment. It's really about listening at that point. Um, listening and, and just writing what I'm hearing. So, um, you know, it's... I don't think at that point in time, for me at least, that's not a good time to be um, to be editing, to be trying to censor one voice or the other. 
um, sometimes at that point, I still don't have a full idea of the story. I still don't know how everything is going to happen. So what I need to do is to gather all the clues that I can. So I, at that point, you know, initial, initially, I'm just writing. I'm trying to hear. And then after that, I'm trying. It's almost as if I'm trying to repeat what I've heard. And to ask more questions to st about the parts that I haven't been told. And then I want to know, well, why hasn't this particular thing come out in the initial? What, what would have happened there? What could be the reason for this? You know, who behaves that way? What kind of person is that? Um, so that's about asking questions and developing more. And then by the time I get to the editing process, I know what the story is. Um, and I'm just all about trying to polish that story to the best that it can be. So for me, at least at the beginning, when I'm just trying to listen, that's not the best time um, to censor. It's almost as if somebody's trying to t give you an account of something that happened and you're kind of stopping them and saying, well, that, did that really happen that way? Or, you know, it can, I think it sort of puts a spanner in the works, at least for me. So, um, Personally, I don't think that that editing is something that I can do at that stage. I'm not sure whether it would be wise for me based on how my process is. Now, your debut, Sherry, is how the one-armed sister sweeps her house. Um, tell me about the, the very first moment that the initial idea that what would become this story came into your head. What was the the, the, the spark of the light bulb? Well, um, I was live, actually living and working in the UK at the time. And I had a very, very long commute um, from work. I worked in Brixton. Um, and I remember on the last leg of that commute, I was on a bus um, going to Thamesmead, which is where I lived at the time. And I was so, so tired. It, it was cold outside. The snow was coming down. And I just, I just basically heard this character talking to me, like, you know, just in my head. Um, and I was intrigued by what she had to say for more, more than one reason. Um, and, and some of that was, you know, there was there were some similarities in our stories. So really, that is how the initial inspiration came to me. She started um, talking um, and I started to get a little bit more interested in what I was hearing um, as the journey wore on. And by the end of it, I thought, OK, yes, I can. I can write this story. I can, this is, this is something new. I'm going to write this down. And I remember I had a red Royal Mail <laughs> notebook at the time. It was one of the ring bound ones that you get in the post office. And I just went back, um, got into the house. It was fairly late in the evening. I didn't stop writing until the next morning. And at first I thought it was going to be a short story. That's how it, how it started. Um, but then it just, it just grew from there. So the inspiration for me was sort of, um, it's, a, it's a fine line between thinking up this character in my head and, and thinking that I'm actually hearing um, somebody's real story. But that's how, that's how this one came about. 
So if it's a character that's that's talking to you, she still needs a, a pot to go. You can't fill 400 pages of a book with, with just a, a, a random character, can you? So when you've got her, when you've got her, and then the next morning you're kind of jotting down some, some thoughts, how does the, the idea of the plot start to take shape? How are you putting her in a situation that will help you fill a story? Um, I'm asking questions. I ask myself questions, you know, who is this person? What is her background? Is she reliable? Why would this have happened? I mean, you know, what sort of other people would have been around and in her life? And usually when I, when I do that, you know, tensions naturally develop. Things um, come up. And I, I start to feel that I understand what sorts of challenges or what sorts of conflicts this particular character would be involved in. And I start to, I just ask myself more questions um, and things just start to, to come out. Sometimes it's augmented by, I may see a particular person somewhere and this has happened to me more than once. And I, I look at the person and say, you know what? That person is tone or, you know, tone is just like this. And I just ob- observe um, things about, about that person or that place that I'm seeing. Um, and that's really, that's really um, how it happens to me. So it's a very organic process for me and it's, it's difficult to explain because it's not as linear and it's not as perhaps organized as it is for some other people but I find that's that really is what works that really is what works for me so what type of questions are you asking your your character um, you know why how like you know why not who's this how do you feel about this person? Um, what would have happened to cause this particular reaction? And, you know, I say that I've, I've said before, for me, characters are also very unreliable because just like people, they, they tell you their particular part of the story. That's never the full story. So it's about being able to ask the questions to get the information that I need to get from all the characters and then crafting and editing based on, on what comes up. So, um, you know, that's, that's what I, I tend to do. Sometimes I get bits of the story and it's a little bit like investigating something because I know something else would have had to have happened in there. I know there would have been a particular situation a particular conflict a particular challenge and I try to ask myself how my character would have responded to that and why and then I write from there if you're writing this story really to to tell the the, to do justice to the character almost how much thought are you giving to how a reader will will read it how well they'll turn the pages I'm talking about the tricks and the tropes of storytelling uh, how I mean, you mentioned with show don't tell earlier on. How much do you think about those? Well, I mean, I I do think about that a lot, um, but more towards the middle to the end of the process. Like I said at the beginning, it's it's about listening. It's about getting things down, and then it's about 
crafting. So crafting this story now is is slightly different. This is when I move into being faithful just to the story. And part of the reason why, um, I don't want to say my loyalty changes, but it, it's, it's, um, it's more like my focus changes. And then I'm really putting myself in a position of storyteller. And if I'm telling this story, I want to tell it in a way that people understand it, um, that they're compelled by it, that perhaps um, they're, you know, they're motivated to keep engaging with it. Um, so that's when those elements come into play. I would say at the crafting stage. And then the editing stage is almost um, checking myself and making, seeing, you know, to what extent I've maybe overtold one or other part of this story, or, you know, I've gotten caught up into something, you know, into putting in something or including something because it sounds nice when it's value, it's inherent value as part of the story is very, very low or, or nothing at all. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a hard thing for any writer um, because we are, I, I certainly am interested in how this story is told um, equally as much as I'm interested in the story itself. So when I get to the crafting and the editing stage, that's what it, it really is about. Talking about that crafting, how much are you thinking about, I know it sounds quite trite, but the specific words that are on the page? Are you trying to make every word... Um, almost something that uh, put together in a way that no one's read before? <laughs> Definitely not. Um, I, I, I read somewhere recently, there was a quote that said something like, you know, if it sounds like writing, I scrap it and start over. So one of the things I try to do in my writing is to get out of the way of the story. I mean, I can appreciate um, good writing and I've read things before that have moved me deeply or, um, you know, compelled me to engage um, with the narrative. And that's wonderful. But a lot of the time, I'm not, I, I just, I don't like writing that's very self-conscious that, you know, you read it and you can tell that this writer is just trying to demonstrate their knowledge of technique or that they can write beautifully. I really just want to hear the story. So whatever is technique in that, in that um, regard is really just a servant. So it's just about whatever is going to help the story to be told. Usually that's telling it in a very, um, in a simple, clearly understandable um, way, even if maybe you use some techniques that that aren't quite um, so obvious, but I tend to like um, subtle writing. So no, I'm not looking at the page and saying, okay, this line needs to sound better. It needs to um, just flow off the tongue. I do read bits of my work aloud um, because I think when I want that when the reader is is reading mentally, um, that there there's nothing about my writing that gets in the way of a fluid process, a fluid engagement. So sometimes the writing can actually 
um, get in the way of the story for that reason. So I do read aloud sometimes, and usually that's in the editing editing part of things, um, where I'm just trying to make sure that, you know, it's subtle, it's, you know, I, I don't think I'm a self-conscious writer, and that there's nothing there that gets in the way of the story. Now, lastly, I have never been to the Caribbean. I know one of the issues that uh, people from uh, the UK especially faces is the idea of like exoticism. Like we imagine it's this place which, which perhaps does a massive disservice. And I know that's one of the themes that the book kind of tries to counter. Uh, how important is it for you to reflect an accurate Barbados to the rest of the world who might be reading this as you're writing? I feel it's it's really important to not just be beautiful in the eyes of somebody else, but just to be. Um, and being has its good parts and it has its bad parts. And I think any honest depiction of anything, whether it's a person or a place or a thing or a state of being, um, tries to represent both those aspects. So for me, I think the, the problem with us, perhaps in the Caribbean, is that we totally buy into the picture-perfect postcard of our region because it served us um, for a very long period of time. If our economy is dependent on tourism, then we want to deliver what tourists expect. So I think there's a very complex, a very complicated exchange in terms of how we present Barbados to the world, how we present ourselves. And that may be very different um, from what life actually is like. I mean, there are good and bad things in any country, in any part of the world. So I think there's a tension there that I found very intriguing and I wanted to explore in the novel. So yes, I mean, we are picture perfect we are beautiful but we're so much more than that and I thought that that complexity certainly was worth exploration not only for people from outside who might read about Barbados but I think also for us and that is it for this week's writer's routine thank you to Sherry Jones for coming on the show and for bearing with all the tech kerfuffle as I tried to dial up all the way to the Caribbean uh, you can find a copy and grab a, you can grab a copy of her debut, How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House, using the link in the episode notes and over at writersroutine.com as well. That'll really help out. The show will get a little kickback. Now, next week, uh, we're chatting to Abigail Dean all about her phenomenally successful book, Girl A. It's all over the place at the moment. You can hear about how it feels dreaming of success, debut success, and then actually achieving it and how she organised her day and her life and her workspace to get that done. It's next week on Writer's Routine with Abigail Dean. Uh, I will see you then. Thanks for listening. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 